Well, hello, EV Knight. What a roller coaster ride, right? Um, especially after last week, first week of us all back together in the one room, able to lift our voices together in praise. No COVID around us to the disappointment of tonight, uh, where I'm speaking to you in your homes. I'm looking at Zach again behind the camera. Uh, it's his dad in the morning. Good to see you there, Zach. Um, we, we're separate. Um, there are real health concerns around us, and it's okay to acknowledge our disappointment, our frustration, our sadness. And so it's fitting that we actually continue in our series in the Psalms tonight, because the Psalms reflect the same kind of mood swing that we've experienced from last week to this. I mean, David, one of the people who writes many of the Psalms, in one moment is saying, how I thank you, Lord, with all my heart. And then the next moment, how long, Lord? <laughs> are you going to forget me forever? The Psalms are a book of songs that cover the spectrum of the human emotions. And there's something so compelling about that in the Bible. See, the Bible isn't asking us to just put on some plastic, cheap, you know, Christian face. Everything's all good here. Everything's always awesome. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But rather, it actually speaks of life from our experience, which has a range of emotions in it. And we actually come to a psalm tonight that pushes into the issue of doubt, and particularly doubt in God. Now, isn't that striking that the Bible contains the words of a man who expresses his doubt in the God of the Bible. Again, one of the reasons why the Bible is so compelling that it connects with our very real human experiences. And for most of us who have been following Jesus for some time, can relate to the experience of doubting God. Doubts in our faith in Him. Now, I want to put to you that there's at least three reasons that cause doubt in our faith with God. Firstly, ignorance. This is more of an intellectual doubt. See, for you, you may not know much about the God of the Bible. You haven't been around the things of Jesus, and so they're just unknown to you. There's content that needs filling out. You hear claims about a man who was born to a virgin, who was raised from the dead, who did all sorts of extraordinary things. You doubt that. Because you haven't actually pushed into it to check out the evidence. But then there's a second reason for doubt, and it's connected to our sin, to our persistent, willful rebellion against God. It's a clash between our beliefs about God and our behaviors before Him. You know, like you, you believe that God has a particular shape for human relationships, for marriage, for sexual intimacy. Yet, you continue to dabble with experiences outside of that. And a sense of distance comes into your relationship with God. Whoa. Is He there? Is He good? The longer our willful, persistent rebellion against God goes on, surely the more doubt is going to enter our lives with God. Something's got to give. Either the belief 
all the behavior. And if that's you tonight, if you're doubting where God is in your life, is he near, does he care, and you're actively rebelling against him knowingly, then the word to you is very simple, very clear. It's repent. It's to turn from that behavior and back to a God who forgives, back to the intimacy that is restored. But then there's a third cause for our doubt in God, and it's not a sinful one. It's not a clash between our belief and our behavior, but rather between our beliefs and our experience. What I believe about God doesn't seem to line up with what I'm seeing around me, with what I'm experiencing in life. You know, I believe that God loves me, but why is He allowing so much hardship into my life? I believe God provides for me, but why did I lose my job when so many others didn't? I believe that God holds on to His people. Why have my friends walked away from the Lord? Our confidence in the goodness of God is thrown into doubt because our experience doesn't line up with our beliefs. That's the kind of doubt that's on view here in Psalm 73. A man who is very honest with us, he tells us he comes to the brink of falling away from the Lord because of what he sees around him. But, Spoiler alert, Matt read the first half of the psalm. It's one that begins with complaint and confusion, but it ends with great clarity and deep comfort. This is a beautiful psalm. And the great blessing in it for us is to pay attention to his journey. How does a man move from such confusion and complaint to such clarity and comfort? This is one of the most practical parts in the Bible. For you tonight, if you are experiencing this kind of doubt in your walk with the Lord, or for you tonight, for when you do. See, here's the thing. For those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, doubts are going to come. In fact, if you believe in anything, doubt isn't too far behind you. And the worst thing that you can do with your doubts is to deny them to squash them down, to pretend that they're not there, they'll eat you up. Like I said, biblical Christianity isn't about putting on a plastic Christian face. All smiles and hallelujahs, all positive, all up. No, no, no. We see right here that the Bible invites us to actually acknowledge our doubts and to bring them to God. There's a kind of doubt that isn't necessarily sinful, that isn't the same as unbelief. Hear that, to, to experience doubt in your walk with the Lord is not the same as unbelief. If we don't deal with our doubts, it may lead to hardness of heart and unbelief. But this psalm is an example of Doubts that actually become a doorway into deeper faith. Doubts that actually become a doorway into deeper faith. And so I trust that, that that's where we'll all land tonight, no matter where we're up to with the Lord. So here's the plan. I want to notice the massive contrast between the two halves of the psalm. And then I want to come back to the pivot point, the hinge. What is it that changes this man so drastically and apply that to ourselves. But before I go any further, let's pray. 
Father God, we are again reminded of just how fragile our lives are. Uh, just a tiny little virus that can wreak such havoc. We're reminded that our plans can so easily fall over. And yet, whilst that might be the case for us, your plans never fail. The purposes of your heart are always achieved. And so we want to ask that that might be true for us tonight, though the setting is different to what we would have hoped, that your word might speak to us powerfully, that it might humble us, that it might lift us up in the things of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first part of the psalm. He kicks off verse, verse 1 there. Make sure you've got it in front of you. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Here's this man's starting point, his statement of faith. God is good to Israel, to his people. And it's this starting point that sets the contrast for his complaint that follows because he's going to go, oh, but hang on a minute, hang on a minute, verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. It's a vivid image of a person who is climbing up a steep rock face on a massive mountain. No ropes, no rails, just an abyss below. And their foot and their feet slip. Can you imagine, maybe you've experienced that terrifying moment. Only death either side. This man has come so close to losing his faith in God. Why? Verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you remember how the book of Psalms opens with Psalm 1? We looked at it a bunch of weeks ago as we kicked off our series. Psalm 1 is a, is a great psalm. It's a fairly straightforward psalm. Do you remember which contrasts the righteous and the wicked? The righteous are compared to a tree planted by streams of running water whose roots go down deep. Everything the righteous do, they prosper. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff, blown away in the wind. Two ways to live. But when you get to Psalm 73, this man looks around him and goes, hang on, Psalm 1 doesn't seem to be working. Far from the wicked just being blown away like chaff. Look at them, verse 4. They've got no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're enjoying good health. Verse 5. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. The wicked person mocks the message of Psalm 1. <laughs> chaff hey yeah right this man looks at them and goes god what's going on why won't you bring judgment on them especially when they are so arrogant because verse 9 their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance they say how would god know does the most high know anything is a picture of the godless person, the wicked, prospering and sticking it to God. Judgment? What judgment? 
But there's more wrong with this picture for this man. Because not only are the wicked prospering, the righteous are suffering. Have a look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. It's been in vain. It's been for nothing. My, my, my faith in God, my desire to live for Him, to honour Him, to live a life separate from the world for Him, it's been in vain. Verse 14. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. Here is a man, a righteous man, a follower of the Lord God who is suffering deeply. So much for everything he does prospering. Can you see his complaint? Do you see his confusion? Psalm 1 doesn't seem to be working. In fact, it seems to be upside down and inside out. His faith in God is not lining up with the facts of his experience. And so we ask the question, why bother with a life with God if I can actually find a better life elsewhere? If it's the godless who really are onto the good life, why bother? What about us? Does this connect with you in any way? Does it connect to your experience as a follower of Jesus compared to what you see around you? I don't think it's hard to see the parallels to our own day. I mean, in one sense, you can look to the celebrities, those who really live the hide life by flaunting their godlessness. People who use the life, breath, talents, gift, not to honour God, but to make much of themselves and their fans, their followers, drink up their waters. But if I'm honest, it's not the celebrities that I'm really envious of. I actually find that my own heart struggles with envy more for the people in my own backyard. Coasties. Coasties who are living apart from God, no interest in Him, and yet seem to be living a pretty good life. Do you find that? You find yourself envious maybe of their wealth, people around you. Because after all, if you keep every single dollar that you earn for yourself, it's going to be easier to get ahead. It's going to be easier to experience things, places, compared to being generous, to giving away, to love and serve others, to support the cause of the gospel. That's not a great investment strategy. You go to your financial planner, that is a terrible idea. Maybe you're envious of the health you see in people who are ignoring God. I mean, they're looking strong, fit, healthy, and you're crippled with mental illness. But I'm a follower of God. What's going on? Possibly you look around the people on the Central Coast and you're envious of their partner, of their companion. See, when you don't care what God has to say about relationships, about marriage, about sexual intimacy then it's actually a whole lot easier isn't it to find someone that you click and connect with someone you're attracted to and settle down with them at least have a crack at that but for the person who says no 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 
I want to approach these things in a way that will honour God. Therefore, it's not just any guy, any girl. It's a Christian man, a Christian woman, one that I'll be able to honour the Lord with. That significantly reduces your options, doesn't it? Or maybe for you, it's same-sex attraction. Yet you have a desire to honour the Lord, to live in a way that would please Him, and so you choose to remain celibate. And loneliness becomes a part of your life as you seek to serve and honour God. It's possible to get envious of the people around us and their summer break. You know, here they are, kicking back, enjoying holidays. You're giving up work shifts to go and serve at Summerfest to tell a bunch of people on the coast that the good life is with the Lord. Oh, but it just it doesn't feel as fun. It doesn't feel as exciting. Am I missing out? I reckon if we're honest, there's all sorts of things we can find ourselves envious of in those who live in our own backyard without a care for God. And we can find ourselves wondering, is it worth it? Is this Jesus thing going to be in vain? Am I going to get to the end of my life and actually I've missed the best life? This tension can become so strong for us that we can actually find ourselves in that place where our feet have almost slipped. We've almost come off the rock face in terms of our walk with the Lord. If that's where you're at, if that's where you come to at some point, what do you do? What do you do? Well, what does the psalmist do? Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Here's the key to the psalm, the hinge point, the, the place where this complaint and confusion give way to clarity and comfort. He's trying to make sense of things on his own. He can't. He's at the point of despair until he enters the sanctuary of God. Now I want to come back to that in a moment to unpack that some more. What, what is it about that? And particularly, what does it mean for us? But firstly, let's notice the shift. What changes for this man? Because he comes to get clarity on two particular things. Firstly, about the wicked. See, verse 17, he's troubled deeply until he enters the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Have you seen footage of the tsunami that happened a bunch of years ago? And there's people just on the beach, living the dream. Boom. Without notice swept away it's the picture given here of the fate of the wicked and he realizes that i was envying them look at what's coming when he's given eyes to see their end he realizes that it's actually they who don't have a foothold 
they who are on slippery ground. Verse 20, they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. I find that to be a chilling irony. That on the coast, people who are living the dream. I'm living the dream, Jez. I was talking to someone else. I'm just, I'm living the dream. They don't belong to God through the Lord Jesus. And actually when they stand before him, their life will amount to nothing more than a dream before him. It's a chilling irony that 50, 80, 90 years of all kinds of achievements, family, career, travel, whatever, amounts to a fantasy, a puff, a dream when they stand before God. Now, the Bible here is not belittling human life, a human life, just a fantasy gone. No, 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 it's very much the opposite. It is taking human life so seriously that it would take people's decision to belittle God seriously. And the righteous, just judgment that must come from a holy God. We spent time pushing into God's judgment a few weeks ago, so I won't linger now other than to remind us God's judgment is good, is right, is holy. But it's chilling. It's confronting. So for us, for you tonight, whatever costs you are bearing for Jesus because you stand with him, whatever costs are coming your way as a follower of him, whatever comforts you see in those outside of the Lord that you're tempted to envy, how could we possibly long to be in their shoes? When we measure our lives on the scale of eternity, and when we take what Jesus has to say about hell seriously, when we believe him, how could we possibly envy anything in the godless that live around us? And how could we not possibly give ourselves to the mission of bringing the only news that saves people from this judgment? As Adrian has already spoken about and as summer kicks in, we give ourselves again to proclaiming the only news that will save these people who think they're living the dream but will be dismissed as a fantasy. The news that Jesus came to die in their place, to take the terror of God's judgment upon himself so that by looking to him, we might be spared, we might be saved, that God might actually become our refuge. And praise God, in the last two weeks, we've had another four people become Christians among us. God is at work. He is saving. He's using all kinds of things that are different to how we would plan them to extend the saving news of Jesus. There's the first thing the psalmist gets clarity on. The end of the wicked. How could you possibly envy that person? But secondly... He gets clarity about the righteous, about himself. He recognizes what's true for him in spite of his difficult circumstances. As we come to some of the most 
beautiful, powerful verses in the Bible. Verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28, As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Last week, we looked at the Word of God and we were encouraged to work at the habit, the practice of storing up in our hearts the words of God. There's some beautiful words to store up in your heart. I'd encourage you to stick those on your fridge this week on your phone. Because the reality for the righteous, the psalmist realized, is that God's got you. He's guiding you. He'll glorify you. He's got you. What an image that the Lord God holds us by our right hand. An image of his presence, of his nearness, of his protection. Jesus said, surely I am with you always to the very end. So that as his followers, by his spirit, he is with us. Where you sit or stand tonight, if you have the Holy Spirit of God, you are on holy ground. And notice that he comes to realize that God's closeness and protection doesn't mean no affliction. There's nothing in this psalm that talks about his circumstances changing and now I can praise God for what I have. Rather, in the midst of whatever circumstances are going on, he's given eyes to see the relationship that he has with the Lord. God's got you. Be so careful not to read God's blessing off your circumstances. To measure his nearness by how you feel. He's got you. He holds you by your right hand. He guides you. Do you remember last week, Psalm 119? Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. He has given you every word you need for Christian life, especially those moments where we doubt. Everything that we need is here. He guides us and he'll glorify you so that whatever is in our past, in our present, in our future, on the other side of that is an end, a final end, which is a glorious one. One that reflects the glorious end of the Lord Jesus 2 Corinthians 4, we had it read. Just as he raised the Lord to life, so he will raise us with him also. That is the statement of the resurrection of Jesus. This psalm finishes in a very different place to where it started. But notice this. Nothing is said about his circumstances changing. You know, as if, God removed all the hard stuff. Now I can rejoice in the goodness of my relationship with God. No, 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 no. It's not his circumstances that change. It's his perspective. 
and he's given eyes to see things with spiritual eyes. See, that's been his problem through the psalm. Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw. He's measuring everything from his own eyes under the sun. And he's again given eyes to see things from above, spiritual eyes. He gets clarity on what he's been saved from, the judgment of God, the fate of the wicked. He gets clarity on what he's been saved to, relationship with God, tender, constant. And it's power enough for him, even within great affliction, to now with even deeper certainty say, surely God is good to his people. See, verse 1, it functions at his, as his statement of faith and the contrast for the but, but it also functions as his end point. He begins with the end that he's arrived at. God is good. Let me tell you about some hard stuff, some doubts. But then let me tell you about the shift that God brought about in my life so that I can again say with even deeper confidence, God is good to his people. Now let me head towards finishing by unpacking that turning point some more and applying it to us. Here's the big thing that I, I want us to get. It's the importance and power of the spiritual community. The importance and power of God's spiritual community. Verse 17, the turning point. See, all of this changes for him because he entered the sanctuary of God. It's a very short line. It needs some unpacking. Now, literally in the Old Testament, the sanctuary was the temple. So at the time of David, the, the time of the Psalms, it's the physical temple. Yet given the poetry of the Psalms, I take it that line there, that reference to the sanctuary is emblematic. It, it captures up a range of other things, including humility before God. See, if you were to walk into the temple a thousand years BC, you're walking into a massive structure. Like you are absolutely dwarfed by it. And this structure symbolized the presence of the unseen God. And its size and its grandeur was supposed to make you feel small compared to who God is. Appropriately, as opposed to those whose tongues take possession of heaven and earth. The sanctuary, is, as you think about it, is supposed to make us think humility, smallness in contrast to a great God. The temple was also the place where the word of God dwelt, as it was read, as it was proclaimed. As we looked at last week, words that are like no other because they are from above, from the mind and mouth of God himself. Therefore, able to give us insight into the things that we would be otherwise completely blind to. And thirdly, the sanctuary, the temple, was the meeting place of the people of God. We might hear sanctuary and think some quiet space, you know, chilled out, relaxing music, aromas going. No, no, no. This was the busy meeting place of the people of God who would come together to pray together, 
Yes, they and us can and should pray to the Lord wherever we are on our own. But there's something profound, isn't there, when we actually pray together as the people of God. When we beg his ear together, when we join in and say amen together. It's the place where people would come to sing the praises of God. And we got such a, a taste and a tease of that last week, didn't we? Able to be back again. No doubt many of you have been singing praises to God right through this year in your car, in your home, maybe lounge room, watching the stream. But there's something about adding our voices to each other's as the gathered people of God. The temple was the place where they would sit under the word together. Yes, you can read and must read your Bible wherever you are, but there's something about that act together which is profound and powerful. The temple was a bloody place, quite literally. It was the place where sacrifices were offered for sin so that as the people of God would go in there, there was a constant vivid reminder of my guilt before God, of my need to have it taken away, washed away by a substitute. Now for us, Jesus radically changes the temple since he is the new temple. He's done away with it. There is no need for a physical structure for the presence of God. He's done away with the sacrificial system. All of that was pointing to him as he came, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. The place where we come to meet God is in Jesus. We come to Jesus in his word by his spirit. This building that we meet in, it's just a sun and a rain shelter. It is not the house of God as the temple was the house of God. But it is the place that we have where a very important and powerful activity occurs. See, when it comes to dealing with your doubts in the Christian life, God has given us as a gift to each other. God has given us his spiritual community to be a powerful means of actually processing our doubts, getting perspective on our doubts, moving through our doubts. Just in your presence at church, you've encouraged me in my faith. Whether I know your name, whether I know much about you, that you have come, you've encouraged my faith. Because I've just had another week in the world. And a week in the world that hates the Lord Jesus, that's a long time. A week in a world that is full of the godless, who are chasing after all sorts of things that I'm tempted to be envious of, that's a long time. Maybe I'm tempted to wonder whether this Jesus thing is really worth it. But I come to church and I'm comforted by the fact that there are others here who think he's worth it. I'm not on my own. Often, not always, but often when we're struggling with doubt, we're struggling with it on our own, in isolation. But church, the spiritual community of God, is a place that God gives us to come to and to be humbled. To actually, not, not like the structure of the temple, it's not the size of the building or where we're at, but we actually come to something that says, We've been joined to something much bigger than ourselves. 
joined to a community that stretches all the way back through history to the time of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's an irony in what I'm saying, isn't there? And that is, we're not meeting. We're not churching tonight. It's off, we're streaming. Streaming is not church because we, the gathered people of God, can't be gathered. But I offer this to you so that we might actually feel the sting of it some more. I know we've felt that through the year, but this has been the year where the Lord has been teaching us just how significant and important church is. We pray that this is just a blip, that we will be able to be back together very soon, hopefully this week for Christmas, in a way that meets restrictions and is safe. But whenever it is, I want to put to you the importance of prioritizing the gathering of the people of God. The power of church as it ministers to the potential of your doubts. But it's more than just our presence. It's the perseverance of God's people that stirs us on. So you may find yourself in a place where your faith is weak. Maybe because life feels anything but blessed. You wonder if your faith is in vain. You've got some hard stuff going on. But here's the thing, as you are connected to the spiritual people of God, there are people among you and around you who have been there. People that, that I could get up here and they could testify to you horrific suffering that's come into their lives unexpectedly. They could talk about how it shocked them and jolted them to the core. It caused them to almost slip, but they didn't. They clung to the Lord. The Lord used his word, his people, that they might continue on. I could get some of these people up here, and when you heard what they've gone through, and they say to us, surely God is good to his people. Wow. There is a power in that for us, isn't there? I could get Mavis up who's 85 years old. Uh, many of us know something of Mavis. We've, we've shared part of her story in the past before. Mavis could get, get, get up and share her story about how she fell in love as a young woman, deeply in love, head over heels. But to a man that she worked out, she wasn't going to be able to honour the Lord with him. And so broke off the engagement to him and has spent the rest of her life single. Mavis could get up, tell her story, acknowledge the hardships that have come with that, loneliness that's come with that. But she would get up and say to you, surely God is good to his people. Riette, Louis's wife, we heard news of the family. We grieve with what they are going through, what is coming for them. But Riette this week says, we don't understand it, but we trust God. God is good. Person after person after person. Do not miss the importance and the power of the spiritual community of God. Do not cut yourself off from it. 
be so careful about extended trips, time away from church. It's not really much of a problem at the moment, is it, with restrictions? But this will pass. And the young people bug, you know, whenever I'm listening to Triple J, it's always moaning about we can't travel, we can't, when we're able to travel again, be so careful about taking yourself away from the spiritual people of God for an extended period of time. I've just got back from long service sleep. So thankful for it. It's been a big 10 years, really glad to be able to take a breath. 10 weeks we had. We got to the end of our time, my wife and I. So much that was good, so much to be thankful for. And we said, um, what's been one of the best parts about it? And it was interesting. We both offered the same thing. We said, oh, it's shown me how easy it would be to slip away from the Lord if we removed ourselves from the people of God. We had 10 weeks away, not connected. We were very aware and mindful of the tendency to drift, the tendency to live by sight alone, not by faith. To start living for the temporary, for the now. Every night was Friday night. Surrounded by people who were living that way. We felt it. It was chilling. We're so glad to be back among the people of God. Be so careful about removing yourself. Give yourself to the people of God. Gathering as we're able. Connected through growth group. Connected in whatever ways we can. We long to be back together. Psalm 73 is another reason the Bible gives for prioritizing church, the gathering of God's people, even for those who are struggling with doubt especially for you. Might this be a place, might we be a people where doubters are welcome? A place where doubters are able to wrestle with, move through, get perspective on things so that they might actually lead to stronger faith, sharper clarity, eternal perspective, deep, deep comfort in all that we have in the Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to bring before you any of us tonight who really are feeling like we're about to slip off the rock. We relate to this man's words. There's all sorts of confusion and complaint and distance. Father, I want to pray for these people and ask that you might minister to them by your Spirit. Pray that your word, as we've heard it tonight, might speak powerfully to them that you might put your people around them who would be a great encouragement to gain perspective, to hang on, to be patient. Father, you don't tell us how quickly this man worked through his doubt. We ask for patience uh, to keep day by day waking up, cling to you, so that each one of us might have testimony of a powerful work that you've done in our lives. Each one of us might in time be able to stand up and with deeper conviction say, surely God is good to his people. You are faithful, you are good. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.